Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom Davis, and I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. I'm vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. I hope by now that you know that this is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where we have informal chats with experts in their field and we tackle the most important questions that we all face in the diagnosis and the treatment of thoracic cancers. It's important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not in any way have any input to the planning, content or delivery of anything that we discuss. Welcome to another BTOG podcast. Uh, this uh, podcast is continuing our theme about mutations in lung cancer. And I thought that this month we would talk about KRAS. And if you're going to talk about KRAS, you really want only one person in the UK talking to you. And luckily enough, he's joining me for the podcast. And that is Colin Lindsay, who is Mr. KRAS. And they're, they're more exciting titles than Mr. KRAS, but I think it's a very important one. Uh, Colin is a, a senior lecturer and honorary consultant in medical oncology at the Christie, um, has an active research uh, portfolio looking at KRAS centered things, um, as well as, of course, being a being an oncologist specialising in thoracic malignancy. Colin, welcome to our podcast, Mr. KRAS. It's a very kind introduction, I think, Tom. Uh, thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, that is my great pleasure. Uh, we are recording this uh, at the beginning of September um, during the heatwave. Uh, so uh, Colin's in, in Manchester looking hot and I'm in London uh, looking hot. Um, we're going to focus, as I say, on KRAS. And I think most people listening to the podcast will be more aware of KRAS now than they have been perhaps for a long time because we've now got things we can do about KRAS. But Colin, I'm going to go back to the biology of it. And I wonder if you could tell us um, what KRAS is, where is it, and and what does it do? Yeah, um, I, I, of course. Uh, and so for me, I do love talking about KRAS. So hopefully, I can, uh, you know, I can um, show you that today, Tom. I, it's the most commonly mutated oncogene in cancer. I think is the, the first thing always to say, and it's the most commonly mutated oncogene in lung cancer as well. Um, and so um, as with a lot of these targets that we discuss, it does dominate adenocarcinoma in particular in lung cancer. It's mutated in about 30 to 40% of uh, adenocarcinomas with point mutations that I'm sure we'll come into, but uh, come on to. But in terms of the cancer cell, I mean, it really, from my point of view, sits at this really cru crucial junction whereby it connects the signal signaling of all the receptor tyrosine kinases that we talk about, such as EGFR, such as HER2, um, and, and, then, and then transduces those signals, signals from the receptor tyrosine kinases down to the cancer pathways we always talk about, such as the MAP kinase pathway, such as the PI3 kinase pathway that make the cancer cell do the things that it likes to do, such as proliferate, evade immune signals, um, you know, evade death signals, those sort of things. And so, um, I, I mean, one thing that um, I keep coming back to more recently that I, I think people might neglect to think about is that, you know, there is a reason uh, that we've known about KRAS since the beginning mm. uh, and that it's mutated in so many cancers, and that's because it is so effective. And so we really need to find good good ways to target it. And, and we've known about KRAS mutations for a long time, haven't we? 
Um, we've known they're fundamental to cancer. I remember this when I was a medical student, I think. Mm. Um, why has it taken so long for us to actually get a treatment that works? Yeah, and the, I mean, the, there's inevitable comparisons with kinases and, and that, yeah. can, that can help with this. There's an immediate comparison with BRAF, which is the kinase immediately downstream to RAS, as you know. And, uh, and I, think, I think with BRAF, it was discovered to be mutated by the Sanger about 2002. And within eight or nine years, we had drugs that were kinase inhibitor, inhibitors hitting BRAF and melanoma. Yeah. But the difficulty with RAS, I mean, I think it was discovered as an oncogene in the early 80s, um, is that it's a different type of enzy enzyme, essentially. So kinases bind to ATP, but um, it, RAS is something known as a GTPase, not a kinase. And it, it, a GTPase is bind much, much more tightly to the substrate GTP than kinases bind to ATP. So it's very difficult to find drugs to interfere with that interaction. So it's, um, it's, yeah. at a, it's at a molecular level that we've struggled. It's not that we don't know it's a problem. It's not that we don't know what we want to do. It's just it's difficult to get drugs with the effectiveness that we want, unlike EGFR, where actually finding kinase inhibitors has been comparatively, comparatively straightforward. Yeah, that's right. It's, it was never going to be a target susceptible to big screening programs for for instance looking for promiscuous inhibitors i think it's really required uh, x-ray crystallography expertise i think it has required academia um, mm. and people mm. have been prepared to take a very long approach for our most important targets um a, and yeah and it's ultimately led to really a proliferation of x-ray crystal structures for a number of different mutants that have been described across the world now um, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but you know, there's there's going to be drugs for different RAS mutants. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you about that, but I'm, I'm going to keep that for our for our third course. Yeah, um, maybe, maybe I should just finish it yeah. just because it's an important thing to say is it is a very small, smooth protein. So it is as simple as just thinking about drugs hanging on to pockets, and and there wasn't an obvious pocket for a drug to hang on to with RAS until we had those structures. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you touched upon the fact it's the most common uh, oncogene in cancer. Um, I only treat lung cancer. Um, which of our other colleagues, other tumor sites, are, are, are frequently seeing KRAS mutations which have clinical or, or uh, therapeutic significance? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would br broadly bracket cancers affected, um, the main cancers affected by RAS mutation as recalcitrant epithelial cancers and so they would be um, the main one actually that's affected by KRAS mutation is pancreatic and that's in over 90% of cases. Um, uh, lung um, obviously is uh, as, as with pancreas um, they, they, they are the two key cancers that we want to do much better with but even with colorectal cancer I think it's fair to see that progress isn't as say that progress isn't as good as we would necessarily like. I think yeah. it's still about a 50% mortality and RAS is mutated in about 40 to 50% of colorectal cancers. Um, now, there are different isoforms or flavors of RAS, if you like, and so those are the main ones affected by KRAS, but 
Um, less commonly, we, ha we have NRAS mutated in cancer, and that's very frequent to melanoma. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, we have uh, a, a rarer sub, an even rarer subtype called HRAS, which is actually making precision medicine inroads, and that is common a little bit to head and neck and bladder cancer. So these are ju just to touch on that a little bit for people whose molecular biology won't be quite as expert at yours. When you talk about different isoforms and you're talking about KRAS and NRAS, how are they different? Is this the same molecule, which is slightly different, or is this a different molecule and different part of a pathway? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It could lead to a more complicated answer. So I'm just trying to think of <laughs> how to keep it simple. Keep in it simple for me. Fact, in actual fact, the way the proteins look between KRAS and NRAS and HRAS is very, very similar. The main differences in that those sort of amino acids that make up the protein is that the hypervariable region, which inserts into the plasma membrane, where RAS becomes active. Sorry, it's, it's a complicated answer, but they're, they're ultimately very, very similar, but have, but have differences that are enough to make fundamental, fundamental differences in what we see in terms of mutation patterns and probably clinical, phenoty uh, clinical phenotype in terms of the way different cancers behave. Got you. So we're, we're going to focus on KRAS because KRAS is of relevance to us in lung cancer. Um, the main thing we're interested in KRAS are mutations. We're not interested in fusions, just to explain to people. Um, we know there's more than one mutation. We know, as I suspect most people listening will know, that G12C is the, the one we're particularly interested in at the moment because we have drugs against it. But could you just tell us when we say G12C, what do we mean by that? And what other mutations or abnormalities of KRAS are we seeing which are relevant to our, our patients and their treatments? Yeah, um, so uh, G12C um, is, is, is a point mutation common to lung cancer, as you said, where a glycine is swap swapped for a cysteine, and that's, that's enough to change the protein so that it binds more, we imagine, more frequently to the effectors in the MAP kinase pathway and the PI3 kinase pathway that I mentioned earlier. So G12C, just to break it down, you know, I said the RAS mutation is about 30 to 40 percent of lung adenocarcinoma. G12C would be about, I think, about 40 to 45 percent of those RAS mutations. And what that amounts to when we're on the ground in the clinic is, I think we said it's roughly 13 percent of adenocarcinomas that will have the G12C mutation. So somewhere, I think, for most of us, similar to the rate of VGFR mutation for instance um, what is interesting is that the, the point mutations are relatively predictable but different point mutations occur in different cancers actually um, G12C um, but through luck for us as oncologists um, is the one that's targetable and, and it's also most common in lung cancer um, but it's not so common in the other cancers I've mentioned. So the two most common uh, KRAS point mutations in cancer are G12D followed by G12V, and, and they're particularly prevalent in colorectal and pancreas cancer. And, and, and so, you know, obviously in terms of drug discovery, using the principles of what has been achieved so far with G12C inhibitors, we're trying to see if those principles of drug discovery are transferable now yep. to G12D and, and, and maybe to G12V in the future as well. That's very helpful. And when 
colleagues are looking at their molecular pathology results, it's of course very important to make sure that when you see KRAS, you look very carefully at the subtype because there's no point throwing around a G12C targeting drug if that's not the mutation that's present. Um, who gets KRAS, G12C particularly mutations? And let's focus on G12C from here on pretty much if that's okay. Um, I, I see quite a lot of it in my patient cohort. Um, I had often thought it was perhaps more associated with smoking, but I happened to see someone on Tuesday who's got G12C mutation who's never smoked. Are there clear patient demographic guides as to who have these mutations? Yeah, um, so we, we've talked about adenocarcinomas, and and so there seems to be a, a slight um, dominance by females as opposed to males who will have KRAS mutations. Don't know about you, but I'm never quite sure if that's maybe just because we maybe test more fe more females. Um, a, but certainly that's that's a common thing that we find. Um, right, so ever... more more common in women than men. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, a, and uh, uh, I guess the other thing that is a critical difference to the other targets we've talked about in the past that is a, is a smoking related mutation, as you've as you've alluded to. And so I must admit, I can't remember the last time I saw another smoker with G12C, but I'm pretty sure I will have done in the past. It immediately, immediately obviously makes you think about passive smoking possibilities. I'm, mm. sure you, you, mm. I'm sure you would have asked about that, but it does feel like there are just genuine exceptions. Yeah. Um, so, so generally, this is a smoking-associated, non-squamous mutation that we're seeing um with the other kras mutations just very briefly you touched upon um g12d g12p and the the others beyond that are, are some of those more common in non-smokers or is kras largely the smoking lung cancer kind of mutation yeah i mean for the latter part of the question the answer is yes it's largely a smoking related mutation but in terms of the nuance i think um it is interesting because you, you can see clear smoking imprints um, uh, um, in terms of the DNA changes that occur. And the ones that kind of correspond well with a smoking imprint are all of them, apart from the one I mentioned earlier, as being the most common, which is G12D. And so, I mean, at least in our hands, and I think in everyone's hands, there are more never smokers that might have KRAS G12D mm. but but I, I think an important addendum to that is that most of our G12D cancers are still smokers or yep. ex-smokers yep. it's just a higher it's just um, a higher proportion of I've certainly smokers. seen that I've certainly seen where you're doing your molecular analysis you're hoping for the EGFR the ALK in the non-smoking patient you get a KRAS and it's a G12D is one I've most commonly been very disappointed to see um yeah. Just touching very briefly before we move on to the G12C inhibitors, what's the best way of detecting a KRAS mutation? A, well, I mean, I, I think this is probably an answer for different centres. It's definitely, um, I mean, for bigger centres, it's probably NGS. I think, I think it's reasonable to just sort of, sort of do single gene PCR still for KRAS um, you know, we, we are, as you well know, getting smaller and smaller biopsies and samples from uh, uh, from uh, from patients when they're diagnosed. And so there's always this question that I'm never sure we quite nail about how to prioritize your gene tests. 
Uh, but certainly PCR and NGS are, are the main ways of diagnosing K-RAS mutant, mutant lung cancer. And is there any concern, as we do have with, for example, EGFR, that a PCR-based uh, assay is going to miss types of KRAS? Or if, if colleagues are listening and all they have is a PCR-based system, they don't have access to next-generation sequencing, can they be reassured that they'll pick up all they need to in terms of KRAS? I mean, it's. I think it, it's 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 fine in my experience, okay. at least. I haven't heard of any controversy with that. It's a hot spot, and I think it it should be picked up with PCR. Brilliant. So we're going to move on to the G12C inhibitors. These have been hitting the headlines since 2018. I remember being in ESMO in, in Barcelona, or maybe it was 2019. It was certainly before COVID. So it feels yeah. like a, a million years ago um, when uh, Satorosib, which then had a, just a code name, um, was being the phase one data was being released. Since then, we've had more data, the code break studies. Um, can you just give us a bit of an outline on satorosib um, and I guess it's clinical activity. And before you do that, I'm just going to say to people that satorosib is not uh, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So a lot of yeah. people think it's uh, not a lot of people. People may think that, for example, it's a bit like osimertinib because it ends in ib. Um, but these are actually very distinct drugs. It's not a TKI. And so we should see the activity differently. Having said that, what, what's your take on the clinical data of, of the co-break studies? Yeah, uh, thanks for that, um, uh, for mentioning that. I think, I think, yeah, it's a different drug and arguably it's a different disease as well. Um, I, and so um, and I'll just probably briefly um, uh, digress a little bit by saying when I started this job in 2017, I'm pretty sure that I went to one or two meetings such as World Lung and RAS just wasn't mentioned at all. I mean, that was a completely un unimaginable prospect now with any of the meetings we go to. But um, coming back to the point, uh, Co Codebreak um, has kind of trailblazed with this drug, Satorazib. And what happens is the chemical structure gets disclosed for, um, the, for the academic drug, drug that was first described and then companies you know, produce their own variations of that of that drug. And so Satorazib was first in the scene in clinical trials and, and has generally led publications at phase one, phase two, and now phase three. Um, I was involved in particular with Codebreak 200, which is the only KRAS inhibitor in, in, in lung cancer to get to phase three at this point. Um, and what that did was it compared in second line KRAS G12C mutated non-small cell lung cancer satorazib monotherapy with docetaxel. And so I, I'm pretty sure what you're driving at, and I will come to it, is you know how impressive the results were or otherwise, but just for just for the benefit of, of people listening uh, or watching, um, it, probably the most impressive way of describing the results is that one year, I think 25% of patients were alive with Satorazib and about 10% with docetaxel. Uh, some of the top line data is uh, doesn't sound so impressive when you offer it in other ways, such as a response rate of 20%, which was probably originally described more in the high 30s at phase one and phase two level. Um, and I think from memory, the medium PFS was 
something like 6.5 months with Satorazib compared to 5.6 months with Tocitaxel. So, so if you look at it in, in those terms, then it was just a one-month gain. And, of course, that would, would have been the primary endpoint. Mm. Um, overall survival as a, as a primary endpoint was ultimately abandoned due to an FDA mandate. So I don't think we can say much more about that. Um, and, what, and just and, and let's just touch that because it's really important. So they changed the outcome measures, didn't they? Well, so yeah. the, the, the endpoints. What, what that was done by the FDA, the American Re- Regulatory Authority. Do, do we know why that was done? Because it's had an impact on how we can interpret the data, hasn't it? I think I think it was I think it was a decision off the back of his, of its success at phase one and phase two. They were like, this is a drug that's clearly showing activity. And so we want you to complete this phase three trial as quickly as possible, reduce your recruitment numbers, because I think they cut about a couple of hundred of patients off the planned recruitment um, and just choose choose the most straightforward endpoint. And so, you know, I I mean, you could probably talk for a while and, and speculate about the rights and wrongs of that, but it, but I mean, I, Tend, tend not to, if I'm being honest. I think, you know, we've had these debates with TKIs in the past. Yeah. Um, and I think what we see in the ground, I'd be interested to see what you think is is, is benefits with this, yeah. uh, with this drug. Um, a, and some patients are, are better fit for it than others, possibly still. Um, and, and I guess we have to look at that benefit in isolation of it being a KRAS inhibitor, we shouldn't go into it expecting uh, an a EGFR or an ALK TKI type response because it's a different cancer, it's a different disease, it's a different drug. And I guess in that respect, we say, yes, it's clearly active. I, I, I think the lack of that overall survival benefit was disappointing, but I think it is important we see it in the broader context of a a trial where the endpoint was changed and it was underpowered for OS in the end. Um, I, 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 if I could, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I think a few people have probably thought quite hard about all the differences um, compared to, you know, what you might expect with a TKI. And there's, there's both clinical and biological reasons why it might not perform as well. We've mentioned one or two already, but I guess the first thing to say in terms of clinical reasons is that we've not seen these drugs in the first first line yet, where probably TKIs have their best efficacy. We've just seen pre-treated patients so far. Yeah. Um, it is sort of, um, I, and, and the other thing to say is that, I, you know, we've seen second and third generations of TKIs that have really raised their game compared to the first generation of TKIs that we saw. And, and, and I think we can anticipate that that will be the case uh, with, RAS, with, with RAS inhibitors as well. The biological reasons that I think are harder to address and may well mean that, they, we, that these drugs still don't quite reach that level that TKIs are producing success are, for instance, that, that we're treating smoking-related lung cancer you can imagine with all those mutations built up, the, the potential for resistance um, uh, and the tumor mutation burden is, is, is quite vast in smoking-related lung cancer. Um, I, and, and the other thing, coming back to what I said at the beginning, is that RAS isn't a receptor tyrosine kinase. It is, in, you know, it is 
in the middle of a pathway, although a key node in the middle of a pathway. So there's probably more potential for signaling bypass and things like that as well. So I guess I agree with all of that. And I guess my take is I think it has activity. I think it is clinically significant activity. In the big scale of all of our treatments, I think we would probably say it's modest. But as you say, it's a, it's a first step. Let's think a little bit about side effects. In your experience, you've got a lot of experience with this drug. What are you seeing in terms of side effects of satorosib? And what are your what are your practical steps if people do develop side effects? Yeah, um, I guess um, I'll probably deal with the sort of second worry um, first because um, often we're considering, you know, so I try and preclude the second worry, which is transaminase rise, liver problems, by, if I can, waiting for as long as possible before I move on to cetorizib as a treatment after someone's had immunotherapy. So maybe as a standard practice, I would probably update a scan three months later if I think the patient has time to wait because we know that um, potentiation of liver toxicity by KRAS inhibitors and TKIs probably is more likely the closer you are to dosing them the two things together in, in time. And so if I can, I'll wait three months to try and present prevent liver toxicity, which I think and Cobrit was described at grade three level at about roughly five to ten percent of patients. Um, the other key thing is um, diarrhea and, and, and gastrointestinal upset, and I think at grade three level that was described at roughly ten to fifteen percent with, with, with cetorizib, and Imodium is certainly helpful for that, but it's unquestionably a problematic side effect uh, in some patients. And I guess one one of the interests with that is really. Um, going back to the phase one, actually lower doses of cetorizib were quite effective. Um, and the FDA also mandated, uh, mandated, and I don't know where this trial is, this sort of phase two trial comparing two different doses of cetorizib. Um, and so it may, it may be that we, we reconsider doses in the future, but, but overall what it amounted to was about 30% rate of grade three side effects, mainly constituted by diarrhea and, and liver derangement. And I think it's fair to say, and I, I agree that those are very much the side effects one sees, that prompt recognition, holding a dose, and then either restarting or dose reducing is is key, and not to be shy of dose reducing, no. because I found dose reductions can be very effective in management of side effects. And GI side effects are are, are not very nice. I mean, although we would say, ironically, a grade two diarrhea is mild. If you've got grade two diarrhea, yeah. it's not mild, it's miserable. So I think yeah. we should say to our colleagues, watch those symptoms. I, I really like the idea of if you can separating the immuno from the KRAS inhibitor, and we'll touch on that in a, in a minute or two. Um, but yeah, dose reduce if you have to. And dose reductions in, in the trials were were not inconsiderable. No, and actually, I don't have the number on the, of this off the top of my head. So I'm sorry. Yeah, neither do I, which is why it's not inconsiderable. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm, I'm never shy with dose reduction. I, I'm, it's impossible to say ultimately, or, 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 so it's probably not worth speculating on, but I'm never particularly convinced that it affects clinical outcome when I dose reduce um, targeted therapies yeah. in general, but certainly with the KRAS inhibitor. Um, there are other kids on the block. They're not um, currently funded uh, or available um, 
uh, in the NHS, Adigrazib, Adigrazib, or Adigrazib, or however you want to pronounce it, yeah. is the other one. Came out very, very similar time, probably a step or two behind Satorasib, producing very, very similar data in terms of response rate, progression-free mm. survival. But they did have some data on brain activity. What's your thought on Adigrazib generally? Is it a better drug, the same drug? And what's your view on it regarding brain activity? Yeah, thanks. I, I think... Um... It's really, it's really interesting to have the comparisons. I think the top line data, as you've suggested, is is very, very similar. Where we are, uh, maybe I'll start in, in what we call it, because I am pronouncing it differently, I think, to our American colleagues who say sotorasib and adagrasib, but those are very hard inflections. I think it trips off the tongue to, uh, to say adagrasib. <laughs> The top line data was for what we have with Dagrazib, which is Crystal 1, um, a, a phase 2 single arm study is a median overall survival, which is very similar, 12 and a half months. A response rate, which was very similar to at least the phase 2 for Satorazib, which is in the high 30% region. Um, and a median PFS, which I think is around 6.5 months as well, very similar too. Um, what is quite interesting when you look at the detail of it is um, the waterfall plot is unquestionably more impressive. You see more depth of response being apparent, um, but there are, is probably a higher toxicity rate with the Dagrazib as well. So I don't know necessarily if it's just you're gaining one thing and losing another, and that's why the top line data is the yep. same. But there is a bit of a, a bit of a sense of that um, because. Adagrazib has been slightly behind Satorazib in clinical rollout. As you might imagine, they're trying to show things that are exceptional. You know, Marathi is trying to show what's exceptional about Adagrazib. And so they were definitely the first to describe, off the back of some preclinical data, some CNS efficacy. Um, a, but these are small molecules. I have to say, I think I expected, I expected them to both offer CNS efficacy and actually the data I have to hand is really um, the one I was involved with more, which was the cold, the cold break stuff, which showed ultimately the, the time to CNS progression uh, in patients with brain mets and, and in, in code break was six months for docetaxel to near 12 months for, um, uh, for Satorazib. And so there seems to be, although Marathi were the first to describe this, undoubtedly, I think there seems to be CNS efficacy for both. Probably what we would expect, very important for our patients, incredibly important for our patients. Also, just slightly difficult, at least as, as far as I can see, to unravel how much of it was previous radiotherapy how much of how many of these lesions were untreated, but unquestionably some of them were untreated with radiotherapy before and seemed to be responding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, that I guess is less relevant at the moment because we don't have access to drug, although one it may do. In the last three four minutes, um, I wonder if you could touch on what's next because you mentioned, and I, I would be in agreement that the data for SOTO and ADI, that's much easier, abbreviations. Um, it's good. Uh, it, it's great to have agents. Um, KRAS is a common mutation. We are very grateful for drugs that work at all. 
but it is a first step and I think the activity is modest. Um, what is being done to try to beef this up? Now, I'm aware that there was data of combining SOTO with immunotherapy, which created a lot of toxicity, hepatotoxicity, yeah. and that study was stopped fairly quickly. But then there is data on ADI with a, at a lower dose with immunotherapy, which seemed to get rid of that hepatic toxicity. What, what's your take on that? And what other approaches beyond sticking in immunotherapy do you think might might bear fruit for the G12C um, patient population? Yeah. yeah, I think I think the first thing that's really interesting, of course, is that because this is a target in smoking related cancer, immunotherapy combination absolutely comes to the fore in a way that it never did for TKIs. It wasn't particularly successful with TKIs, but it wasn't such an important question to answer because we didn't necessarily see immunotherapy would offer uh, so much to never smoking patients. Now for KRAS inhibitors to really leverage their success, I do think we, we need to see um, immunotherapy combination occur successfully in some way or another. So the data I think started with Satorizib again, um, and as you've uh, as you've said and described, I think it was the combination was looked at in different ways in a phase two. Um, a, a different, it, I think it was looked at with a tezolizumab and pembrolizumab in different doses of cetorizib. And whatever way they looked at it, they were seeing high rates of grade three liver toxicity. Um, and so this has sparked something which is going to be interesting for the future, which is as far as I can see, the cetorizib ongoing combination trial program is dropping immunotherapy and prioritizing chemo combination with cetorizib compared to chemo immunotherapy. And that is a clear divergence from what Marathi are doing with adagrizib. Um, so adagrizib, I think, have clearly described very interesting efficacy, well, has clearly described very interesting efficacy with immunotherapy combination. It seems to be a bit pdl one dependent for whatever reason, but from memory at AACR this year, they were talking about response rates up to 80% in pdl one high, high disease mm -hmm. with, with the Dagrazib combination. Now, I think we need to see more data about the toxicity with that because clearly the line was that there was less liver toxicity, but to me, it did still look like there were significant rates of grade three toxicity. I just wasn't totally sure on what that toxicity was, but I think the top line number was still something significant, like 30, 40%, Tom. Uh, and so, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, it, it, as you know, to some, sometimes it depends what the toxicity is. And obviously, Marathi um, have decided they're going to go for it, and I, I commend them for that. I think we need to really yeah. push, with the, push with this question and, and uh and, and find out, find a way for our patients how to combine the two. But I don't think it's necessarily all going to be straightforward. I presumed, and I think I may be wrong with this, that it would all just be like a class effect that's common to all G2LC inhibitors. And, and it's, but then there is data from other companies suggesting that the dose of G2LC inhibitors can make a difference and they're seeing less immune mediated toxicity with a lower dose of their G2LC inhibitor. So I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I, I haven't figured out all of my thinking in this, but I, I, it's just a tremendously important question. 
But I think it's also in good for our patients that we have two companies looking at different combinations. Uh, they're both doing yeah. the same thing. Then your your options are more limited. So we we, we look forward to that. Um, SHIP2, SHP2 inhibitors, they, they've been bandied around as something to add in. Um, are you excited by that or do we just need to wait and see what, what that what that throws out? Um, I I think they're very interesting drugs. I think I think their place. Um, I mean, if we talk a little bit about the science, basically, shit to mediate some of the activity of RAS. So RAS cycles between being off and on, and shit to shit to kind of mediate it prompts it into being in more of an on position more frequently, and so uh, you can probably intimate from that 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 its role is i think is going to be more of an adjunct to the ras inhibitors and and i don't think its monotherapy data has been particularly impressive from what i've seen um there have been um, data from a company for instance we've been involved with called revolution medicine who produced the ship 2 inhibitor and and they have their own ras inhibitors but initially they combined it with satorazib and so we're going to see some more data with that um a, but i think i think the role of uh, drugs such as SHIP2 or SOS1 inhibitors is going to be more com- combinatorial. Interesting. Last question. Um, brief 30-second answer. Um, I get asked a lot about uh, from patients and, and colleagues about patients with non-G12C mutations. Obviously, there's nothing licensed mm. at the moment. If you were to give your top one or two potential approaches to those what would be your top one or two or do we not know yet so my top one or two potential approaches to g12 non yeah non non g12 ck mutation do we have classes of drugs which are beginning to be looked at in early phase trials are we are we still really nowhere near these guys okay yeah i think i think i hear you i mean it's probably monthly if not weekly where i have Colleagues asking me when a G12D inhibitor is going to come. <laughs> a, you need to work harder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the answer is, um, and 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 it's. I think it's great news is that G12D inhibitors are in clinical trials, not G12B inhibitors, which may be covered, or which may be addressable in the future. But there are PAN-RAS and PAN-K-RAS inhibitors that are coming through that may address G12V. But coming back to G12D. Um, those drugs are in early phase clinical trials, not in the UK, and I, I think just in the US at the moment. And that's for the simple reason, um, unfortunately, that it's it's US-based companies that are creating creating those drugs, and it's a finite number of patients in need for early phase trials, and those patients can come from, from the States. But I do sp- speak to these companies on a fairly regular basis and really try and plant, plant seed that we have such an emotion, you know, it's such a need for, uh, for these, if they're going to be as effective as G12C inhibitors, I think that's enough, uh, I think, to really encourage them as quickly as possible to bring their trials to the, to, to the UK, yeah, if, not pan, if not PANRAS, PANKRAS, I think, you know, I'm... I'm, I probably do need to be working harder because I'm not I'm not succeeding so far and and getting one of those tri- trials here. But I promise it is really top of my priority list whenever I go to clinical meetings. 
Um, economy. Yeah, I think I think that kind of advocacy for our patients and trying to bring studies to the UK is incredibly important, and I think it's not seen by people. So we, we you know we, we commend you for your efforts. It's it's hard. We always we all want to make the UK a better and more attractive place for trials because that's better for our patients. But it, it can be hard to fight against the the, the bigger countries sometimes. Yeah, and 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 just and. Um... I, I hope you don't mind, mind me digressing a little bit to this, but the science of G12D is a really important one, and, and it does make you think that G12D inhibitors could be more effective than G12C inhibitors, for example, because it really seems to be a bit more of an oncopotent, oncopotent mutation than G12C. So if you can get a drug that, that hits G12D um, in some sort of similar way to, to G12C inhibitors and G12C, I think it, I think it could work very nicely. I will leave it there. Colin, that was a tour de force. Thank you so much. I can't imagine anyone knowing more about it than you. I now know more about it than I did. Um, so I'd like to thank you very much for um, your time in this podcast. Um, just to remind uh, people listening that you can get various other podcasts through where you download them from. Um, and we're going to be continuing our program of other mutations. And in the next couple of weeks, we are also recording a podcast away from mutations this time, something completely different about the GERFT or the Get It Right First Time uh, external review of um, cancer services, which is something we've probably all been through um, and which is an important thing to make sure that we are uh, maintaining good services. So Colin, thank you very much. And thank you very much for everyone for listening. Thanks, Tom.